0: For 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear.
1: Technology and design have changed pretty much everything we do and touch over the past few years, except for how we shower. That is largely the same, but that is about to change for you because there's a company called Grohe, spelled G-R-O-H-E, that is the maker of innovative faucet and showering products. They are renowned for their worldwide German engineering, their cosmopolitan style, their intuitive performance and sustainability. Groa products feel like they were designed just for you. Turn up your showering experience with Groa Smart Control, the latest in shower customization technology. Smart Control lets you manage up to three bath and shower functions with one seamless control. You can declutter your shower wall and elevate your shower experience at the same time. They are fully personalized. It's literally like just this beautiful technology that you stick on your wall that actually changes your shower experience. It's got temperature and volume controls with the smart control. It looks gorgeous. It really changes the way you shower. Learn more about Growa Smart Control at growaus slash hive. That's G-R-O-H-E dot U-S slash H-I-V-E. Once again, grohe.us slash hive. Welcome to Inside the Hive. I'm your host, Nick Bilton. We have a special treat this week. This podcast was actually recorded in front of a live audience, real human beings. Uh, I actually interviewed Dara Khosrowshowsi, who is the CEO of Uber, who took the reins over from Travis Kalanick after he was tossed out of the company for a lot of bad stuff that happened while he was there. And... We recorded this conversation in front of an audience at the Vanity Fair New Establishment Summit. We got to a lot of different stuff, including what it's like to take over from a CEO who has kind of left a company in a bad place, uh, how he plans to fix the culture of Uber, and what it's going to be like when automation takes a lot of jobs away from people who are currently driving for Uber stick around after the show because John Kelly and I are going to talk to each other about some of the things we saw at the conference, including a conversation that we both had with, uh, Michael Avenatti, who is uh, Stormy Daniels lawyer and about the 2020 election. Uh, We're going to actually be posting a few different um, clips from the conference this week. Uh, So keep an eye out in your podcast app and you will see some pop up, some really amazing conversations with some really brilliant people. So without further ado, uh, let's go talk to Dara. Dara.
2: That was actually an internal uh, video that we prepared for our employees when we reframed the mission of the company. Is so.
1: it going to be out in public now, too, or?
2: It wasn't designed for public. This is the first time we've uh, shown it to the public. But it was really this, this idea for us as a company that we are about movement and opportunity and how the two are very much interlinked. Uh, some, there's a way to frame Uber and that we are essentially a market for labor and the labor is happens to be driving, and then obviously we're very much in the transportation business. And ultimately for us, movement represents freedom, movement represents the opportunity to go chase something that, that you want. And we wanted to link the two together as part of the mission going forward.
1: So how much of this is, is a, a fancy ad campaign and how much of it has the company actually changed and the culture changed? The
2: culture change is still going on, right? Like you, you don't set a culture out there and all of a sudden it magically happens. I think that uh, one of the, the remarkable things that I saw when I came to Uber was that there was this very different view of Uber from the outside than the inside. When I met the engineers, the product people, et cetera, they really believed in this idea of providing, of democratizing movement and transportation to the world, fundamentally making a world a better place as a result of the services that we offer. Uh, But I think the how, to some extent, um, how we grew, maybe we grew a little too fast, et cetera, was what needed to be changed. So I think we're on a journey as a company. We do believe that we can be a force for good. I think that we've demonstrated that externally in how we approach uh, regulators, how we approach cities. Uh, We've really taken some big steps on the safety front. So we are slowly but surely changing uh, our actions but deeply rooted in what we're doing is this idea of democratizing movement and opportunity for everybody but the the cultural change continues you know you, you, you never stop working on culture at a company and for us it's this is a beginning of a journey for us
1: so you, you said you've, you've done some stuff on the, on the safety side uh, there's a story uh, in Toronto uh, last month of a, an Uber driver who had just moved to the city uh, for, he'd been there for for about a few days and um, uh, was dropped his phone, pulled into traffic, uh, was hit, and the passenger was killed. And one of the big complaints from people in Toronto, and there was protests, and I'm sure you know all about this, um, was that uh, if you're a taxi driver, you have to go through a 17-day safety program. Uh, if you're an Uber driver, you just download an app and, and so on. Do you think that um, when you kind of look at these, and then look, I understand that these things are far and few between, but do you think that, that there is more that you can do with safety?
2: Absolutely. Uh, So we put safety as the top priority for the company. um, And we have introduced safety features like a 911 button, essentially integration with 911. So if something does happen to you, you can instantly connect with 911. They know what car you're driving, they know where you are, et cetera. Uh, We've introduced uh, features, uh, for example, your loved one can track where you are so that she or he can know, where did you start, did you end, et cetera. Not good for people in Uh, an affair. Well, you know, be careful (laughs) about who you share your uh, trips with. Um, And and then we have now new technologies where we are looking at um, sensing how the trip is going. So for example, if a trip from beginning to end should take 15 minutes and there's a 20 minute stop in the middle, we are now going to Uh, interact with you and reach out to you proactively and say, Nick, is everything okay? You know, did you need a bathroom break? What's going on here? So we're actually, I think the ability for us to build technology to make the Uber platform fundamentally safer is something that we have been working in earnest as a top priority for a year. And I think it can go on and on and on from here. Um, Fundamentally, we believe that we as a platform are making uh, moving from place to place safer. Drunk driving, for example, is something that hopefully will be of the past, uh, and we're going to back it up. We've actually this next year we're going to issue essentially a safety scorecard, uh, and that's going to be scary
1: for us. So what there. do you mean a safety scorecard?
2: With, essentially, for drivers. Uh, safety like this guy might for... kill you
1: and this one won't. No, or... you can never predict that. Yeah, th- you know, <laughs> um,
2: it's it's looking overall don't get at our platform. Car. Yeah, yeah, it's it's looking overall at our platform and essentially putting the safety statistics out there. How many accidents were there? How many serious issues were there? Uh, And we want that to be a marker for the transportation industry. I think that data in general has been something that companies and governments have held too closely. Uh, And for example, we are now sharing our traffic data with cities to help them design Uh, street patterns, curbside pickup, drop-off, traffic patterns, lights, et cetera, so that we are actually sharing the data out with with, uh, the cities to improve how cities move. And we believe from a safety standpoint, we should be sharing that data with consumers, cities, so that you as a consumer know what's the safest mode of transportation one way or the other. And it's gonna force us then to keep investing in safety and turning it up a notch and continue to innovate around safety as well.
1: So last night I, I, uh, I was with your wife. You were there too, don't worry. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and I asked her what questions she would ask you on stage. Uh And she said, uh, what were you most scared of when you took this job? God, what was I most scared of? Um, Travis coming into your room at
2: night and killing you? <laughs> no, 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 Sorry. No. Uh, tra- sure, th- that was a nice one. Thank you. Tra- <laughs> Travis, was actually, uh, Travis is, was actually very supportive through the process, um, and, and he's been a supportive board member. Um, I, I think what I was the most scared of is this, I mean, you know, the, being... the public profile of the job. I had ran Expedia for 13, 14 years, partnered up with Barry Diller, who was a terrific partner, um, and we had investors, et cetera. But, but I had a chairperson with whom I was aligned. We, we went out and, and, and we built a company together uh, without the kind of public glare that we have now on Uber. And it was something that is, you know, it's exciting, but at the same time, you read about it. Uh, and you can imagine what it's like, but until you are in the seat, you
1: you really don't know how it feels. So a a couple of years ago, you could have been in the audience and I no offense, uh, but no one would have known who no you was. No offense were. taken. Yeah. Uh, and now, if you type in D A R in Google, it auto completes your name, which I'm sure pisses off a lot I of. I had people no with, idea with yeah. Dart. Things. And then there's there's YouTube videos that explain how to say your last name, there's, uh, with thousands <laughs> and thousands of views. Did you did you watch one? I watched yeah. one because I still don't know how to do it. But. Um, uh, don't test me, please. Um, <laughs> but uh, wh- what was it? What was it like going from like being? I mean, you, you know, you a lot of people, a lot of uh, well-known CEOs, they kind of get this gradual thing. You parachuted in. What was that like?
2: Uh, I'm still honestly getting comfortable with it. My my wife Sydney is kind of pissed off at me because when we go out to dinner, uh, I get recognized every once the in a while. So people complain about their Uber to you a you lot. Know, most of them are pretty positive, and then there are a lot of ideas that come out. We actually, um, you know, <laughs> what, this idea, what's that idea, idea and what's, uh, we have some good ideas out there. Yeah, um, you know, we're we're working on them. Um, but Sid and I like to, for example, bike around San Francisco with the kids. And uh, the other day we were biking around. A guy shouts at me from the car, "Couldn't afford a an Uber?" And, you know, <laughs> he thought, he thought it was hilarious. But I was
1: and like, "You're like Travis. Davis, come or on, leader. leave me alone." <laughs> Um, all right. So let's talk about the board for a second. So I've covered uh, some pretty crazy boards in my time. They're bo- all boards are, are crazy. Most boards are crazy. Um, uh, look, Apple back in the day was was mayhem. Um, Twitter, which I wrote a book about, is without question the most book. the most insane. Thank you very much. Nice plug there. Uh, Uh, Twitter was so crazy that uh, one of the board members ended up leaving his wife to go and and getting together with Jack Dorsey's ex-girlfriend. I mean, it's like just total nuts stuff. However, the Uber board actually takes the cake. It was, you know, you had board members suing each other, you had people leaking everything to the press. We've had no affairs. You've had no affairs, as you you know of. Have you... (laughs) (laughs) There's a theme here going on here. Uh, Have you... um, have you been able to tame the board? And if so, how? I don't know if taming the board is, is
2: the right term, but I think the board is in a much, much better place. Where we came from last year was um, not necessarily a board, but an investor group that was struggling for control of the company. Uh, and there were investors and there was... Um, some of the founders who were fundamentally misaligned in the direction of the company, and that translated up to the board and how it operated. And we solved that by essentially blowing up control so that there is no one who can control the company. And once the struggle from, once the ability to control the company disappeared, then the board got down to business of building. Uh, And at this point now, we brought in a chairman, Ron Sugar, uh who's also on the apple board chevron he's run a company northrop Grumman, for many many years he understands what it's like to sit in the ceo board he also understands what the role of a board is uh and having him there is great because i've got so much to do on the business side that having a partner at the board, and I had one with Barry, that was incredible. I think hopefully Ron and I can build that partnership as well. Now the board is focused on building the company, on preparing the company and and thinking about growth, not just one year out, but five years out. Um, Thinking about our IPO, which we're preparing for next year. Uh, And at this point, I think that the board is, you know we're kind of coming together as a team uh and right now my engagement with the board is is much much more positive so i i think those days are behind us how um, uh, how and, often and do i think they're good days ahead of us how often do you interact with travis i interact with them at board meetings and then offline we talk every once in a while and travis has incredible knowledge and background on the company i think he wants to help the company uh and he's also you know doing his own thing you know he is an entrepreneur heart uh, and he's not a person who's gonna you know, sit around relaxing, so he is off to building another business, and I think he's a terrific builder, uh, and I think he provides me advice when I need it, and he's been very respectful of
1: that. Do you worry that he's uh, post-IPO gonna try to take his job back, and is it a job that you wanna keep for an indefinite period of time? I don't worry about that. You Listen, don't? I,
2: I, I wanna should. be my job, ah, no, no. <laughs> No. What's going on with Travis and you? Uh, it's listen. I, I want to be in my job. I, I want to be in my job as as I deserve that job. Yeah. The minute I'm not doing my job, it is in my interest to be out of that role. I'm not focused. I'm focused on building with a company. I'm focused on building a team. I'm focused on creating a company that we can be as a team proud of. Uh, and and you know the job will take care of itself.
1: One of the things is uh, Jeff Bezos was being interviewed this week and he was talking about how as a company, um you know, a lot of companies, they find themselves in a situation where they can only grow in a certain direction and and space, you know, Lionsgate, for example, can only really make movies and TV shows, they're not going to start a driverless car company. Amazon can go anywhere, that's what Bezos said, and it seems that that is the case with Uber too, where are some of the things that you imagine that the company will go, either pre-IPO, post-IPO, that are not just scooters or or food, but something that, that, you know, you haven't really spoken about Well, before. these scooters and food can be big, right? It, we, we suffer from having too much
2: opportunity right now as a company, and we've got to pick our spots, and then where we pick our spots go in very, very heavy. The the transportation industry, this is a $6 trillion global business. We're 1% of this business. Um, in terms of how people and things move around cities, uh, and, you know, we have our main ride-sharing business. With Eats, we're getting into the business of moving food around, and I think that that um, this product of delivering great quality food to you at the home in 30 minutes or less is magical, and it's going to actually move into grocery in, in a way that's fundamental, and a lot more people are gonna be eating at home. So I think Eats can be an opportunity. So there's opportunity.
1: a world where you do Uber grocery shopping?
2: Uh, right now, we are busy with Eats, but you can absolutely see grocery as, as being an adjacency. But right now, it's all in on Eats, because I think Eats can be as big as the rides business. Um, but when we think about Uber right now, we're thinking about as much more as a platform. Really, you know, I've talked about our building the Amazon of transportation, uh, and that means our being an orchestration layer so that any way that you want to get a thing or you want to get yourself from one place in city to the other, we have all of the choices available it is beautifully orchestrated so that you've got real-time information on how to get from point a to point b you can pay for it automatically and you can do it all on the uber app and movement is something that you engage in every single day three to five times a day eating is something that you do three times a day so these are habits that that go very very deep and someone needs to be the orchestration layer for people moving around in cities, and I think that can be us, and I think it's an enormous opportunity. It will be on the ground, it'll be with people, it'll be autonomous, it'll be in the air, uh, and eventually, I think we have an opportunity getting into freight business as well, moving things. So there's a, there's a lot that we're doing, and the real challenge for us is where we focus and where do we partner.
1: So once you get your, all your data and it's all working to move people around and then food around, can you essentially just take that data and say, okay, we're gonna put it on freight and, and understand how that system works and apply it that way, or? We are building
2: a uh, freight automated brokerage system essentially, uh, matching shippers uh, and trucks, uh, taking the middleman out, essentially giving more money either to the shippers or the truckers as well. Uh, Right now, it is a process that requires tons and tons of people making phone calls, taking big margins, and we essentially want to use automation to give the margin back to the truck driver or the shipper uh, one way or the other. And I think the intelligence, that matching intelligence, is the same
1: exact matching intelligence that we use to match you with a car or to match you with food. You just said the word automation, and, and giving it back to the trucker and the driver. Isn't automation going to take away those jobs? And that's a, this, this is a two-part question, actually. Isn't it going to take away those jobs? And A and B, are you, you put all your automation on hold recently. So, how does this all kind we of come together? We put the testing, uh, the testing in
2: the streets on hold until we know that our testing can be absolutely safe, and we expect to be on the road before the end of the year, but we, we've, I've got to know, the team has to know that it is as safe as humanly possible. I, I think that the drama around automation that the press loves to talk about is that machines are gonna replace people, and, and I think that's, that's totally wrong. Really? I think, I think that the superior entity is machines and people together. You see it in auto manufacturers, um, You know, auto's actually, auto manufacturing is becoming more and more automated, but the the manufacturers that have gone all the way to automation actually have largely failed, and the ones who are augmenting people and machines together um, have improved, and actually it's resulted in more jobs, but it's resulted in the number of parts, for example, in a car going from an average of 3,000 parts to 40,000 parts. So, automation, people and machines together, is the superior entity, and for example, as it relates to us, I think that for the next 10 years you know we're less than one percent of miles driven on the road Um, as we build um, automation and self-driving cars which which will be in the road when they are fundamentally safer than human drivers the cost per mile of our network is going to come down which is going to increase the demand going into the network and i think we will be 20 to 30% of miles driven on the road, and even in a, in a circumstance where we're 20% of miles driven on the road, we're 20 times bigger, even if humans drive 20% of the miles. And you want humans to work on the complex value-added tax, even if they, if they drive 20% of the miles, that's four times the number of driver partners than we have today. So automation builds businesses, builds new services, and people
1: and machines are the superior thing. I disagree with you, but I'm going to leave it at that. Uh, time will tell. Um, I just, time will tell. You know, I mean, if you look back in history, the the, the most tumultuous time uh, in history uh, from a crime standpoint was actually during the auto um, the Industrial Revolution, because and this happened over 120 years. There was so much job loss so quickly that people turned to crime, and we now have Donald Trump as president. And um, Industrial Revolution, Donald I just, Trump. Interesting. I just had to drop it somehow. Uh, <laughs> Um, no, but but but, the, but that was 120 years, this is going to take place in 10, 15, and it, it, it just feels like it's something that we should be talking about a little bit more rather than, you know. Well, I think we're, we're talking about it.
2: I, I do believe that while there may be displacement in certain geographies, and we as a society have to be aware of that displacement, and, and we have to be there to take care of the people who are displaced and retrain them over what you've seen in the past 20 years is automation coming into the manufacturing sector, etc. And the fact is that actually labor and employment has been improving, not the other way around. Now, automation does create value and move some value over to asset owners. And I think the bigger issue that we have in our society is that the asset owners have enormous advantages over laborers. And I think one of the great things about Uber is that it is taking the ability to move, the ability to get to places away from the people who can own cars and making it available to everybody, regardless of whether you, you live uh, in the center of the city. Um, we are making transportation available to people who live in the outskirts, to people who can't afford a car, and essentially that transportation as a service is gonna move value from asset owners to laborers or people who can't afford to own assets, and I think that's a force for good.
1: Um, I, we have one last question um, and. Uh the question is, I get in Ubers all the time, and I'm sure you do too, and you sit there with the driver and you say, hey, you know, where are you from, what do you do? And, and I don't know, six times, seven times out of 10, uh, it's someone who's their second job. They're a teacher, uh, they're a janitor, they're a bus driver, um, and they're working two, three jobs. Um, and I wonder if, uh, and there's also on the, the other end of that, there's, there was a story in the New York Times last week about um, Uber drivers and taxi drivers who've been committing suicide because they can't pay their bills the IPO is going to make a lot of people into billionaires. Um, you, uh, your job is to make Uber into a, a better company. Have you ever thought about possibly, you know, giving back to the drivers more or uh, becoming a B corporation or something that can, like Patagonia, that can let the wealth be shared a little bit more? I think that we haven't
2: thought about being a B corporation, honestly, but we have thought about some kind of equity vehicle for our driver partners i think the most important factor is is our driver partner earnings you know how can we um how can we make sure that their earnings are predictable how can we make sure that their earnings are stable can we actually provide our driver partners with benefits so for example in europe we've introduced benefits that are available to all of our driver partners health benefits maternity leave paternity leave etc so i think listen these our driver partners um are engaging with a platform because it provides them flexibility and it provides them opportunity to earn. Um, I would love to, over a period of time, get them uh, coverage safety uh, and over a period of time, improve their opportunity to earn. I don't think that an equity vehicle, you know, that's a temporal thing, right? It's like, we've got to solve the structural issues there. And I think it gets down to earnings, uh, healthcare, etc., and I think those are the areas that we've been working on with some success in Europe. And I think we have our work cut out for us here. Cool. Well, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you very much. You are listening to Inside the Hive with Nick
1: Belton. So, one of the most used apps on my phone is not a social network. It is not a messaging app. It is not the web browser. It is actually the app Audible. I use it obsessively. I'm always listening to audiobooks on Audible because it is the best place to get audiobooks. And if you remember, there are tons of things that you get for free. There's exclusive audio fitness programs. You also get your audiobooks that you can listen to. They have Audible Originals, which are custom content that they're creating just for members. I'm listening to several different books on Audible right now. I like to switch between, depending on my mood for that day. I'm currently listening to Red Sparrow, which is an amazing novel about the CIA and Russia and so on. Um, I just finished listening to Stephen King's 112263, which was mind-blowing. I sometimes listen to nonfiction books, too. I listened to The Big Picture recently, which is Sean Carroll's book. He was a guest on the show once. My book, American Kingpin, is available on there. It's a great listen. Every month, Audible members get one credit for a book that they want to listen to, plus they get two Audible originals from a changing selection that you can't get anywhere else, plus your books are yours to keep. If you want to go back and listen again, you can, even if you cancel your membership. And if you don't like an audiobook, you just get to exchange it. What Audible is doing today for us, for all of you wonderful listeners, is they are going to give us a 30-day trial and your first audiobook is free. All you need to do is go to audible.com slash hive or text the code hive you all know how to spell that h-i-v-e to the number 500 500 and you can get started once again go to audible.com slash hive that's h-i-v-e or text h-i-v-e to 500 500 and you will be able to get your first 30-day trial and your first free audiobook it is everything you need right now to escape the chaotic world that we live in today Welcome back, John Kelly. That was a um, an interesting conversation, to say the least, with Dara. Thoughts, comments, observations.
0: You've been thinking about adultery a lot, Nick. I don't know. Maybe you're reading Anna Karenina again.
1: <laughs> uh, no, I. Um, uh, he didn't. I don't think he was a big fan of my Travis questions. But that's the question everyone wants to know. You know, they they look at the theme in Silicon Valley of the founder getting kicked out and. Coming back triumphantly to 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 seal revenge, Jobs did it, Dorsey did it, you know, and Travis clearly wants to do it too. So if I'm not going to ask that question. It's it's um,
0: you know, I, I you're you're obviously totally um, within your right to ask that question, but I think the big difference between the Apple and Twitter paradigm here is that um, I'm not sure uh, Dara Kasravi would mind. If Travis came back into the fold four years from now, because and I think we'll be talking about this a little bit, that's gonna you know there'll be a moment in in a, the five to ten year timeline horizon when Uber goes from dealing with its you know sort of startup issues and 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 operational issues and organizational problems and culture issues to dealing with major complexities around automation and eliminating a large part of its human workforce and. And th- th- those may be problems that that Dara doesn't want to be around for.
1: Yeah, and I think that um, uh, that was my biggest frustration with the interview was that that he I don't think was was uh, was honest necessarily about what really is going to happen with automation. Maybe he truly believes that it won't destroy society, but I I think that um, automation, artificial intelligence, machine learning, it's not it's not analogous to the industrial revolution where there were machines that assisted people. It's not analogous to it being a tool, uh, like a paintbrush or a camera. It is, it is going to be analogous to human beings, um, in, or one specific part of a human being. And I think that that is, um, uh, if we're not addressing that now, and if companies like Uber are not addressing that now, it's the same thing as companies like Facebook, not addressing fake news, uh, or Twitter not addressing bots, Russian bots. And um, down the line, whether it's two years, five years, 10 years, 15, um, the repercussions are going to be disastrous.
0: Yeah, so Silicon Valley CEOs tend to get around this sort of uh, line of inquiry by, and, and it may be authentic to some degree, by just explaining how they see the world. You know, uh, th- these guys have made a fortune by, by by basically trend spotting 10 years out further than most other you know, executives and entrepreneurs and innovators can. And I think that to some extent, they think that they're really just moving with tectonic trends and, and they believe things will sort themselves out. Um, but, uh, you know, as, as we know, the, the industrial revolution was extremely painful to to most people. Yep. And the secondary industrial revolution revolution, you know, the one that, that occurred later when the, when these tasks were, um, were sort of institutionalized was also, uh, a period that, that created a lot of winners and a lot of losers too um, but you know that's it, it, these are these are hard things to, to deal with. Yeah well but that's why these people are paid billions of dollars to deal with them um, right. and I think what the, the other thing for.
1: is that's what the money for for um, and the other last thing on this comment before we move on to to you know who uh, is that the there's a there's some fascinating papers and books out there about the during the Industrial Revolution, which for back then in society happened at a quick, a very speedy pace. It was 120 years it took place for the entire Industrial Revolution to, to take place. Um, it was the largest rising crime in history. Uh, and the reason for that was that people didn't have jobs and they still wanted to support their families and feed themselves. and And so, you know, they stole bread because they couldn't afford to buy it. And a lot of other things happened along the way. And I think... It, you know, unless we're actually having real conversations with the people who are making these decisions and building these things about what could and will happen, then, um, uh, I just think it's, uh, it's not going to be pretty. So.
0: No, I, I, don't think anyone thinks it's going to be pretty. Um, it, it'll, it'll, it'll create a very, very small class of super winners and, um, and a much larger class of, of losers. Of have super losers.
1: Uh, hopefully I won't be a super loser, but there's a pretty good chance I will be. Um Speaking of super losers, so one of the things that I thought was most interesting about the entire Vanity Fair Summit conference that you and I have just been at for the past few days was at the very end when me and you and Emily Jane Fox sat down in the green room uh, with Michael Avenatti. And it was the first time I've actually spent time with him. Uh, Stormy Daniels lawyer, uh, and talking about kind of, you know, 2020 and who's going to run, who can win and whatnot. And the thing that I found so interesting was, I, I, Avenatti didn't say he was running. It seems pretty apparent that he probably will at some point, but for, for president, but that he said that the same thing that Steve Bannon recently said on Bill Maher, that, um, that he is the one person that can take on Trump, and I didn't get it at first, and then it got it, it kind of hit me after during his session with with Emily Jane Fox that you know Trump can wipe the floor with with a a goody two shoe, uh, but with Avenatti, you know, what is he going to say? What's Trump going to say that when Avenatti says, "Hey, look, I represent the the." woman that you slept with and paid off. Um, you know, Trump can't respond to that. And and I think that uh, it was just really kind of a a, a telling moment to hear, um, hear Avenatti's viewpoint on that. And I'm just curious if you think, A, he will run, and B, if he could actually put a dent into Trump land?
0: Well, you know, I'd be remiss if I uh, didn't bring up that that people who want to watch this interview can Check it out on the Hive, um, and I think we're going to uh, air some audio from it on a, on a future episode of this podcast. But I think that you know I like Michael. I mean, it, 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 it's hard not to. I've, I've interviewed him a bunch of times before, and um, at, at the at the end of the day, he can be a pretty genuine person. And I think he was he was genuine. He was as candid with us off stages as, as he was on stage, uh, in that he said, "Look, I'm not a politician." I, I don't even really know where I stand on the issues, so to speak. I don't have a portfolio of policies. Um, but I think that I've kind of just, like, I'm the kryptonite. I've been given th- this, this this special, you know, highly media-trained efficacy that, that allows me to um, to get under Trump's skin in a way that, 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 you know, Hillary Clinton couldn't, that Ted Cruz couldn't, that Marco Rubio couldn't, that Jeb Bush couldn't, that it seems unlikely that um, – Cory Booker or Kamala Harris or maybe Joe Biden to some extent that that's a wild card could. So he's his strategy, his, um, you know, his his topic A is that he's he thinks he's electable and he he half apologizes for it. You know, he sort of recognizes, look, I, I didn't pick this. I, I was born with it. It's, it's almost like um, hearing a, a, you know, a pitcher talk about just having the, the, the gift of a, of a, of a you know, 102 mile an hour fastball. But to answer your question, I think that he will realize at some point that that skill is going to be best deployed both for him and for the election and for the Democratic Party on the sidelines rather than in the arena, so to speak. I see. I mean, I think he could be a very
1: effective attack dog in the in the beginning. Uh, um, you know, if there's 27 people on stage and Trump is uh, – Attacking Kamala Harris, or who I don't think can win either um, in this climate, especially because you know the majority of people are not looking necessarily for the most uh, uh, successful person to run the most. The, the most, uh, I mean, as Avenatti said on on stage, you know, Hillary Rodham Clinton was probably uh the most suited person to ever ever run for president in the history of the United States and um and i think that uh she wasn't elected because for a variety of reasons and i think that what's interesting is you are going to need to have someone who is not the typical person who you would expect to run for president or even win in the same way Trump wasn't uh, in 2016, and and uh, and I think you know it, there's a world in which Avenatti gets to be the attack dog, gets to kind of to wound Trump a little bit if that's humanly possible, uh, and um, and then maybe someone else comes in for the win.
0: But don't forget though that the you know the first step of, of any process, not not to be a Debbie Downer here, but. The first step of the process will be to fend off the other 15 or 16 Democrats on the stage. And while I yep. think it is a compelling talking point to an electorate to say, look, I'm the one who can beat Trump, so let's just cut the bullshit and get right there, I, th- I think that um, if he does that, he'll be he'll be fighting a 15-to-1 battle, you know, where other respectable candidates who have a lot of experience in politics will say, okay, but um, to... to to say that is to um really disrespect the interests of the you know of, of the the 50 million voters who turned out uh, and, and and voted for the democrats in the last election or the you know ho- however many are, are are registered as democrats and that that's um and that that's and that's quite cheap so it it's a long it's a long long road and the primaries are usually vicious you know just remember how vicious the republican primary was does oh, Avenatti? Vicious, vicious, um, yeah to get through that, it requires a different set of skills than the one that he very ably demonstrates when he's talking about um, the president. Yeah, I completely agree.
2: You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton.
0: I'd like to tell you a little
1: story There was once an attorney in New York City named Linda who transformed her hobby of locating hard-to-find items into a thriving luxury consignment company called Linda's Stuff. What was once a passion project is now a 100-person company in a 93,000-square-foot facility. As a company specializing in high-end, previously-owned goods, reputation is everything. Integrity and trust are a critical part of how the company operates. From day one, Linda has counted on PayPal to help give her customers confidence and protect her business from fraud, even when selling internationally, which can be a tad dicey, as you all know. She's counted on PayPal every single step of the way with her business. When it comes to growing your business, PayPal is your payments partner for today and for tomorrow. Visit paypal.com slash growth to set up your business account today. You can sign up for free, paypal.com slash growth. Look, we're, we're 30 days away from the midterms, which will tell everything, uh, and then and then it's going to be the day after, it's going to be kind of guessing who's running and people announcing, and um, and uh, there'll be lots of lots of time for discussion about it. One one person who I hope is not running, for for God's sake, is is douchebag Kanye West, who was in the the White House this week mm-hmm. and uh, a reporter a reporter actually said to, to Trump is Kanye West a future presidential candidate and Trump said he c- could be very well could be but he'd have to run in 2024 and Kanye got very excited which means that Kanye you know probably wants more and more attention look out we'll Mike Pence run, uh,
0: I, th- I think Kanye is a potential ticket mate I, I, I can only hope so I, I'm sure mother would be very happy mother, about mother that. will be happy <laughs> mother, mother will be so sad yeah <laughs> um uh well i think
1: that uh we should probably wrap things up um anything else you want to talk about before before we let our listeners
0: go you know um the uh my one observation um coming back from the the vf new establishment summit i'm just curious to get your take on this is um yep you know this was a year that it really did seem like everyone's kind of in competition uh with with one another no matter what business you're in because we're we're kind of evolving from an age of of purely paid media to one where everyone is is figuring out their subscription game. Um, John Stanky on stage broke the news to uh, Andrew Sorkin that AT&T, not surprisingly, is coming up with a bundle that's built around HBO as its nucleus. And he was asked by Andrew, how many uh, many subscription uh, packages do you think the, the normal family will pay for? The assumption being that people will stop subscribing to, like, Xfinity or Optima or Time Warner and start just picking the bundles that they like. And and Stanky said, I don't think it's more than 10, I think it's, but I think it's more than 2, so he's, he's got a, a, quite a bit of latitude there. How do you see this next phase playing out, Nick? And do you think that, um, that the competition will extend not just between Disney Flicks, which is the new Disney service, and um, whatever at and is doing, and netflix but also to like the new york times the washington post to some extent vanity fair which has its own subscription uh, metering business now do you, do you think that it's going to be a flattened playing field a flattened playing field i mean i don't look i think that
1: um uh my personal belief is 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 one from the consumer standpoint which is that you know i remember it was actually the first big article first i think it was the first article i ever wrote for the new york times in 2009 was about me cutting my cable um and uh it was that it was essentially like a how-to guide for how to get rid of your cable bill and how to watch things over the top this is pre-hulu set top all that mm-hmm. stuff it's like and it was it 's that that article sat on the most emailed list for for a couple of months at the top of it, and the reason was was because so many people were so fed up with their cable bill and they were so fed up with the the fact that they had to pay one hundred and twenty five dollars a month when they watched like two channels, and that there were all these stupid hidden costs that were that were on their bill every month, and you couldn't get anyone to fix your cable blah 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 and I think that the, the that over the top is not just about a, a want and a need for the things that the shows that you want to watch it's about the fact that the previous model quite frankly excuse my language, fucking sucked Everyone yeah. and everyone hates and it. Think, you look at
0: the, the top ten most disliked companies in the in america it, it's you know a lot of cable companies are up there. Yeah, and, and, and rightly so. And I think that um, what happened
1: is you had everyone cut their start to cut their cable and then you had, you know, Netflix of course use that to its advantage. And now you have everyone that's saying, Oh, well, if we charge ten dollars a month, we can get um, you know, we can get our revenues back up and so on and so forth. The problem is that they're all gonna do that and you're gonna end up with essentially the same thing as cable, but with just you're just paying the your hundred and twenty-three dollars a month to twelve different places, and and I and I think what happens in that situation is eventually, of course, you know, it won't be ten dollars a month at AT and T or Disney or wherever. It'll be eleven, and then twelve, and then there'll be a tax that shows up that's not really a tax. and 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 I think that and then consumers will figure out a way to cut the next thing and to find a way around that. And I think that um, that these companies these I, I do believe this. I believe companies like AT and T and Verizon—they are greedy, greedy, greedy companies. And I think that if they continue to act in a greedy, greedy way and charge too much, um, that 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 then there will be some technology that comes along to usurp them in the same way, and, and rightly so. And um, and so I don't believe that we will be a house households where um, you pay um, you pay twelve different places ten dollars or whatever it is. Um, I think that there's going to be a limit to it, and uh, um, you know, and there's a world I I do believe you know I know people that will sign up for Hulu for a month just to watch um, because Hulu won't let you watch uh, one of their you know favorite shows like um, Handmaid's Tale or whatever on iTunes yet or whatever, so they sign up for a month, they watch the show, and then they 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 disconnect their service. And, and, um, you know, it's not just about great content. It's about actually being fair to the consumer, especially in the age we live in today. And so I do think that that's, that's a future that, um, uh, that we'll see happen.
0: And just to to, to prove that I wasn't making that up, I, I'm, I'm on a, a Yahoo finance story from a year ago. <clears throat> the most hated companies in America and Comcast is number one, then bank of America. And then if you keep going down the list, uh, there's Facebook, um, uh, Dish is on there and you know it's and, and then Charter Communications is number twelve, so it's um uh it's it's real. People people you know, people don't like paying $150 a month for, for the you know, for what you're talking about. Um What what interests me actually, I I was uh, I came out of this all quite optimistic that that um you know it it seems like the I guess people pay what between Ten and fifteen bucks a month for, for um, HBO and for Netflix, something like that. Um, that's about what they pay for the Washington Post app, right? I mean, it, or, or it, it's um, it's it's interesting how the value um, proposition in this marketplace uh, works out. Um, that there's some sort of recognition that um, uh, that qualitative journalism, um, even if it's not as seductive and visual and often multimedia. Ha- is as valuable as, as as certain other um uh site sound motion content libraries just in anyway no
1: it's it's it, it is re- it's really fascinating and i i um i just wonder if how this all nets out i mean i think that um uh you'll definitely the one thing that will come true is that you'll have more quality content for for more money and more um and less quality content with less money or free or advertising based. I mean, Facebook is a perfect example of that. It's all ad based and most of the stuff you see is just total crap. And and yet, you know, you pay for the New York Times, the Washington Post, Vanity Fair and you see much higher quality content and the same is true for Netflix. And I think that, you know, YouTube, the free videos that all these kids make are free and they're not that great. And I think the question is, is do we find a balance somewhere in the middle where we're paying $50 a month for the things that the media we want to consume um, or, you know, does it net out differently and we have to pay more or, or less or, or whatever. Um, the one last thing I do want to point out, actually, that I, I forgot about that from the conference that I thought was really interesting was that from, you know, you know, I have been to several of these conferences now, I think to all of them, and um, we what's so interesting is when I think back to, like, last year and the year before and the year before that, the people who didn't come this year and why it's fascinating so 2 years ago one of the headliners of of the vanity fair conference was was elizabeth holmes mm-hmm. um who 2 days later 3 years ago yeah uh, right uh john carryou came out and with his first article in the wall street journal and 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 today um elizabeth holmes is um uh, still under investigation from the FBI, and still, and the company has shut down, and uh, God knows what she's doing. Uh, and she settled with the SEC, and and everyone kind of disbanded, and so on. and And then also, you know, last year Les Moonves was up on stage, and he is now gone. Um, and there's a lot of people that I, when I think back over the years, who I saw at this conference and other conferences, not just this one, who were part who had been have been me metooed and it's so fascinating to see how quickly that happened and how effective it was um uh rightly so and i uh it just was it was just like you know it's like it'd be like showing up to a bar every day and then a, a, all of a sudden a few regulars stop showing up um yeah. and it turns out that they were bad people doing bad things i thought that that was fascinating to you're see right and and,
0: and and um e- equally uh uh to equally prove your point, a year ago Michael Avenatti was was literally unknown. And and now he's arguably the most one one of the, the fifteen most recognizable people in America.
1: Yeah, completely. Yep. Um and I think that, you know, back to closing it up with that back to the beginning, like I actually don't think that whoever has the opportunity and possibility of beating Trump in twenty twenty from the Democratic side. I don't even think I don't think we know who that person is yet because I think that it's going to take someone who is come out of nowhere. I mean, look, Beto O'Rourke a year ago, no one knew who he was mm. um, outside of a small little district in Texas, and today everyone knows who he is. And I I think that that's that is what is going to be needed uh, to defeat Mister Orange. Well, we'll see. We'll see. West. We'll see. God love him. Uh, John, it's been fabulous.
0: Uh, Oh, Nick, it's been great. It's been super. I hope you get some sleep.
1: Thanks to my guest today, Dara Shahi, and, of course, John Kelly, who took a red eye last night and was exhausted for this discussion. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Google Player, anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a really sweet, lovely, warm... Review while you're there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence13 for their production work, to my editors of Vanity Fair, and thanks most of all, and of course, to our fantastic, unbelievable, incredible sponsors, Groa, Audible, and PayPal. Please support them the same way you support this podcast. I will see you all next week.